You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. Did you know that there are 16 indigenous tribes officially recognized in Taiwan and up to 29 self-identified tribes? Also, Taiwan's current president, Tsai Ing-wen's paternal grandmother, was from the Paiwan tribe. My guest on this episode of Talking Taiwan is Tony Coolidge. Tony is the founder of the Atayal organization, which is named after his mother's indigenous tribe. In this interview, Tony talks about finding his indigenous roots and the indigenous people of Taiwan. This is part one of a two-part interview. Welcome to the podcast, Tony. Thank you, uh, Felicia. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Great. Um, so... You have a really interesting background as to how you uh, got involved with uh, indigenous communities. Um, so can we start from the beginning with your childhood? What was your childhood like? Uh, I was born in Taipei, Taiwan in 1967, and that was a very different time in Taiwan. Um, I grew up uh, with my grandparents as my mother had to work and also other relatives helped to raise me. Um, but my uh, stepfather, David Coolidge, came into our lives and uh, actually married my mother. And um, we left Taiwan when I was four, so I didn't have a lot of memories of Taiwan. And I, I was just told that uh, I grew up actually learning Japanese first. <laughs> and and then, um, then we moved to Japan. And uh, at, at, and lived on a military base there, and I, I started learning English, and then we we lived around the world as a military family. So my my childhood was one of uh, moving and adapting. Um, I went to thirteen different schools. Uh, wow. I'd go to I'd go to a school for maybe a year, um, and or two, and then we'd move, and then I'd have to start over. So uh, I, I've had to learn how to adapt and learn how to fit in, try to fit in. Um, but that wasn't easy because uh, I, I didn't quite look like everyone else uh, growing up in uh, military, American military bases around the world. So, yeah, I can say there's pros and cons. I, I got to experience many different cultures and uh, countries um, I learned to how to adapt and fit in and be more open-minded and learn from uh, a lot of different cultures. So that was my childhood, just being biracial, growing up, um, not being white, but not being Taiwanese or Asian. Um, it was always hard to fit in, and I used to think that was something, you know, bad, mm -hmm. negative. Mm -hmm. But I, 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 since growing up, I've realized that it's actually a, a big opportunity. To, to be part of both right. worlds, two mm -hmm. different worlds. Mm -hmm. And being a bridge is, uh, I guess, the best way for me to, to make the most of being biracial. Uh, I had two brothers, two younger brothers and a younger sister. And we were, we were kind of close, but I, I was closer to my mother because she was always home. And uh, my father was always out as a military uh, intelligence officer and uh, so we weren't that close to him. Um, so our mother was the, the center of our universe at that time in our childhood. Mm -hmm. uh, and could you talk a little bit about your biological father? 
Uh, my biological father. My mother did not share much about him. Um, his name is Jeff Smith. That's all I learned, and I've actually uh, tried to find him just to give him a chance to know that I, I'm here. And uh, um, but it, you know, it's his choice. But it, it's it's not easy because as a military officer. Um, it's not easy to find them if they don't want to be found. Uh, but he served in Taiwan in the 1960s, and he left Taiwan when uh, my mother was pregnant. So he he didn't uh, he wasn't in our lives. And my wife, my mother actually uh, tore up any anything that she owned from him. So I didn't have any any leads to follow up with except mm -hmm. for his name. Mm -hmm. Right. So your mother's from Taiwan and he was from the States. Yes. My mother's mm -hmm. from Wulai, mm -hmm. uh, indigenous village near Taipei. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he's American. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, but fortunately, fortunately she met, uh, David Coolidge who, who ended up, uh, uh, marrying her and adopting me. Mm -hmm. Um, and a lot of your story has to do with your mother. So can you tell us a little bit more about your mother? Sure. Uh, she got married when she was very young. Um, at that time, uh, life in Taiwan was very difficult, especially for indigenous people. And a lot of indigenous women actually uh, met and married military uh, personnel from the USA. So all over America, you'll find people like me, uh, children of indigenous Taiwanese mothers and American fathers. Um, so my mother did her best to try to fit in because um, life in America was very different than life in the U uh, life in Taiwan. And uh, I, I wouldn't say it was that easy for her, but she did manage. She focused on her family. We moved away from Taiwan in 1971. I was four years old. Mm -hmm. We lived in Japan for a year. Then we uh, lived in the USA for quite a while before we moved to Germany and then back to the USA. Um, but I would say her, her life was mostly, um, sheltered and, and, and at home with her kids because in military bases, there wasn't much she could do on her own. Um, she couldn't really get around. She didn't have a driver's license until much later in life. Um, so she really was stuck at home and she was, I could tell that she was a, a, a bit lonely and she was pretty quiet for the most part. Um, she was soft-spoken. I, I, I knew she, you know, she she had a very big heart. Um, and that, that was evident to me growing up because she always, whatever we had, she always wanted to share with people. And there's a, a story that I won't forget, uh, an experience that I won't forget. Um, uh, in North Carolina, uh, one day it was started to snow while I was at the bus stop and my mother came out to tell us that school was canceled and she noticed that uh, some children around me were they didn't have any coats it was freezing mm. cold but they just had t-shirt on oh dear and uh, my my mother actually told me to take off my coat and give it to this one boy with a t-shirt and I, I was shocked because I love this coat. It was my favorite coat. Wow. And uh, But I listened to her, and I gave the coat. And this boy really, you know, he smiled and 
was very appreciative. And, and my mother taught me, you know, one of many lessons throughout my life about giving and sharing. But I, I could tell she really missed her family. Um, she did talk a lot about her family back home. She called her sisters a lot on the phone. Um, that was about the only connection she had with her, her family mm-hmm. and uh, that she missed. So that that's the only reason I knew she was from Taiwan is that she, she would talk to her relatives in Taiwan and, and also in the USA. She had sisters in the USA and relatives. Mm-hmm. So, um, right. so she never said yeah, much she, about them, but you just knew because she kept in touch with them. Right. And I could tell she was very kind of like melancholy, just mm. Uh, mm. not very outgoing, kind mm. of reserved and mm-hmm. quiet, but mm-hmm. very, very kind. Right. And um, so your mother is the big piece of your work with indigenous peoples. Um, so can you talk about how you learned about her background and then how that led to discovering, exploring your roots? Sure. I didn't know about my background, my indigenous roots, until she passed away. Uh, she passed away pretty young, I think at the age of 44. Uh, she had cancer, and I moved to Florida after college. I moved to Florida to be with her uh, when she was very ill. And um, and after she died, uh, my aunt and uncle in Florida, where my mother lived, um, asked me if I wanted to go to Taiwan with them and to meet my relatives. And so, yeah, I, I didn't turn down the opportunity. And I also saw it as a, not only a way to f- re- meet my relatives, but kind of like to bring her back to Taiwan. Because one thing that I feel really bad about, um, felt really sad about, was that my mother wanted to go back to Taiwan ever since I've known her. Um, but we never had either the time or the money. And she she never kept her promise to go back to see her relatives. So I saw this invitation to go to Taiwan as a way to kind of bring her back. So I you know I brought some of her most important belongings to bring back to Taiwan, to kind of like a, to uh, take to the family cemetery, family cemetery plot to to reunite her with her family in a in a symbolic way. And also to just see my relatives who who missed her dearly and and get to meet them. So uh, it was then that I was confronted with uh, something totally unexpected, and that that was her culture, indigenous roots, something that I knew nothing about. And uh, but it it was very I don't know how to describe describe it uh, awe inspiring. Uh, how so? Eye opening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How so? That's interesting um, adjective to say that was awe-inspiring. What was awe-inspiring well, about it? Well, because I didn't know much about Taiwan. I just knew that it was Chinese. The culture was similar to Chinese, if not Chinese. So that's all I knew about. Mm. But when I went there, I saw something just very strikingly different than Chinese. And and that was totally unexpected. Uh, nobody ever shared that with me, and most people I knew in in America never heard about any other culture but Chinese. So, mm-hmm. when I, when I saw in the in in her village of Wulai that they actually had a, a tourist area um, that was, you know, that that actually showed the indigenous culture, the Atayal culture of the local tribe, 
it looked so different. It looked like, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like Polynesian. It looked like uh, similar to Native Americans and Polynesians. And I've always thought the, the culture, the indigenous cultures, Native Americans and Polynesian cultures were very beautiful and very uh, pure and um, holistic. Just there was so much to it that was attractive to me. And to find out that my mother had a connection to that and mm. that meant me, I had a connection to that. That beautiful culture was, was uh, I don't know, it, it was awe-inspiring because yeah. I felt like part of something so beautiful and I didn't know anything about it. So um, that's what I mean by Yeah, yeah, that's an incredible revelation. I see what you mean now. Yeah, and then to actually see indigenous people not just like the carvings at first, but mm -hmm. then I saw the, the dancers uh, expressing their culture, speaking their language, singing their songs, doing the dances, wearing the traditional clothing. That that really hit me because mm -hmm. you know they were they were they were living uh, yeah, reality representations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What did you learn about your mother on that trip? Like because you actually got to meet her family members. Did you learn anything? else about her um, because she seemed so reserved and isolated um, while you're growing up did you learn anything else more about her from her relatives when I went back to Taiwan I when I learned that we are part of indigenous culture the first thing I wanted to know was why is this something that her children knew nothing about why was something so beautiful uh, not shared and if, if not shared, I mean, even hidden, I mean, why would that be? It, it, it was just a huge mystery to me. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing I wanted to know. Um, so wanting to know that, wanting to, it, it drove me to investigate further. And that's what kind of led to the, 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 the development of the documentary film, the, the, um, the article that I wrote. Everything kind of unfolded from that curiosity that drive to solve a mystery um, but other than that I, I just found out that my mother was loved by so many people that she was very uh, how do you say uh, she was very pure hearted very giving people loved her very soft spoken but also very I don't know attractive she really stood out in her family and uh, people really missed her um and I did learn about how tough it was actually for her growing up in the 60s. Um, you know, her family, her family struggled. Um, well, I'd say not struggled, but her, everybody in the family found, tried to find their way, their, their place in, in, in their lives. And it wasn't easy because of lack of education, but also because they're part of an indigenous tribe. I didn't realize how limited their opportunities were because of that. And um, so I, I knew that growing up as a young, well, as a teenager, actually trying to make a living, trying to uh, figure out what she wanted to do without many education opportunities and being indigenous, she was very limited. So she, she had to struggle like a lot of young people at that time. And uh, she found her way to... You know, when the, when the Americans were in Taiwan at the time, there were many jobs for young women, especially indigenous women who were very attractive. They 
they they found work with the uh, American soldiers. So uh, that's how my mother ended up meeting my father, stepfather. And uh, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't an easy choice to make, you know, to to be away from family and try to try to earn a living and uh, without my, many resources. So. Yeah, that's one thing that I learned is uh, that her life wasn't easy growing up. Mm. Um, and also, um, I imagine there may have been some discrimination or stigma attached to being an Indigenous person, and perhaps that was why your mother kept that hidden and didn't talk right. about it. Right. When I, when I first met my relatives and learned about her, I didn't learn that much except for how much they, they loved her and, and what a struggle she went through. But it was only later when I did research for my documentary and, and my story that I really tried to dig deeper to figure out why she did what she did and why she hid her indigenous culture. So I learned very little during my first experience back in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. But I, I learned a lot more about her struggles and why she might have hidden her indigenous background um, with the discrimination that she faced. I learned that later on as I dug deeper for my own research about my mother's background. And I don't know if that's what you want me to talk about now. Sure, yeah. Yeah, because um, you kind of alluded to that because, yes, you did mention that there were a lot of limited resources which led to limited education and then limited job opportunities. Um, But the other piece of it is that um, she never spoke about um, her indigenous background. And to you, it seemed like, why would she not let you know about that or hide that? And so to me, I'm wondering... Um, what the stigma or this right. discrimination was. Okay. So during the 60s, you know, the KMT came to Taiwan. They were in power very, uh, at that time. And um, actually, Chiang Kai-shek, he went to Wulai many times. Mm-hmm. And when he went, uh, my mother's father was uh, the local chief and maybe mayor. And so... He had to show an example. You know, he had to proudly show his Chinese allegiances um, in order to keep his position. And so I, I feel like that that led his family to be more aware of more aware of uh, the need to promote the Chinese, the new Chinese identity that everybody was forced to uh to show, and so the indigenous identities were were suppressed, and so it, because of their position in the community, they had to suppress it. That the, the importance of suppression was even greater. So mm. I think I think my mother was not taught a lot because of it, and whatever she knew, she couldn't really share or she couldn't really express. So. Um, that suppression easily led to discrimination in, in society because, you know, if, if you have to suppress something, people automatically assume that it's something to be ashamed of and something to look down on. So, uh, yeah, it led to a lot of discrimination. And as I learned more about it, the indigenous people in Taiwan, early on in my uh, 
discovery, I, I realized what did this discrimination look like? They they didn't get the jobs that other people got. They actually had to hide that they were indigenous. They had to mm. try to not be seen that way in order mm. to have opportunities. And a lot of times, even the indigenous people that were had, you know, that were hired to do work, they didn't get paid for it. It was easy for, you know, companies, bosses that hired indigenous people to just say, oh, I don't need to pay you. What are you going to do about it? So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of the discrimination led to a lot of abuse. Mm. Oh, that's terrible. Do you think that's changed in Taiwan or at least in recent years? And when do you think this started to change? Oh, uh, definitely. Because when I first started my exploration of my mother's culture, that was back in 96. And, you know, I think... I, I, I think Taiwan was still a very young democracy at that time. Yes. So, so there was still the stigma of uh, aboriginals being... Uh, Second-class citizens. Yeah. Second-class citizens, mountain people, uneducated, savages, all of that. Yeah. It, mm -hmm. it was still strong at that time. Um, so I was worried personally that, wow, this culture might disappear. And it, it drove me to want to do something, to make some decisions, to do something about cultural preservation and sharing the culture. Because um, I, I did feel that it was threatened at that time. But since since the late 90s and the early 2000s, I did see that uh, changes were made for the better, starting with, uh, I think, when President Chen Shui-bian was elected. Um, he did implement some policies that allowed indigenous people to like, use their own names. Um, I don't know when exactly, but when the government started to make efforts to preserve the culture, preserve the languages. They, they actually uh, put a policy in place to allow the indigenous languages to be taught in schools. I think that was a huge, had a huge impact. And also the, the attitudes of the media changed. I think uh, once, once, you know, once the leader started showing appreciation in the indigenous cultures and, and expressing their, that it was important. I think the media followed suit. I think the media shaped the societal views of indigenous people. And I remember that uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, they started showing indigenous people in a positive light. They started highlighting their, you know, their famous singers and sports stars in a positive light and really highlighting them. So a lot of people's perceptions started to change through through the media as well because of media efforts. Your mother's tribe that you mentioned this, we mentioned this earlier, the Atayal tribe. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the Atayal tribe, like some general facts about um, the tribe, sure. the population, what part of Taiwan they inhabited, maybe their customs, so forth? There are about a quarter of a million indigenous people in Taiwan total, um, but the Atayal tribe is the second largest of the of the groups. Um, there are now 16 official tribes, and the Atayal are number two in population, uh, with about 100,000 people still 
still classified as a Tayal. Um, with the Amis being number one, um, they have the most population. Um, but yeah, the Atayal people are about a hundred thousand. They their their territory, traditional territory, is basically the northern one third of Taiwan, and uh, mostly in the mountains. There, you could you could say they are the they are mountain tribes. The lowland tribes are the first tribes to be assimilated and um, to have their cultures disappear. But the Atayal. Their their culture was much harder to displace uh, because they were in the mountains and it was harder to eradicate them and they were actually showed the uh, greatest resistance to mm. colon- colonialization and uh, so so you could still see a lot of their culture and they're also known as being very fierce warriors very protective and fierce territorial um, they're even known. They were known originally for being headhunters. Interesting. And uh, headhunting was prevalent until it was banned by the Japanese in the 1930s. And um, but still, even though the Japanese government banned it, does, doesn't mean they stopped their traditions. <laughs> and uh, um, but I, I do have an interesting story about my great or great great grandfather, who was instrumental in uh, headhunting being the practice of headhunting actually stopping. Um, so my great aunt told me this story long ago. Uh, she said there was this family uh, near Wulai, this Chinese family, and they, they were farmers, immigrants, and uh, while they were farming, uh, some Atayal warriors actually killed them because they were too close to their territory. And there was a small boy, maybe three years old, and when they approached him, they just were shocked by his calmness. And uh, they couldn't get themselves to kill this little boy. So they brought this little boy back to the village. And when the chief of the village saw the boy, he also felt something about him. And so he actually raised the boy as his own. And so they raised this boy as his own. And uh, apparently this boy really f- adapted and fit in very well. He actually excelled at learning the culture and, and learning how to be um, a warrior. And so he ended up becoming a chief for Ulai village. Mm. The non-Atayal guy became the Atayal chief. And... And it's through his leadership that he actually convinced the Atayal of that area to give up headhunting because he was able to see things differently. And it was through his leadership and persuasion that they they banned headhunting. So so that's a little story that not a lot of people know. And and if I was going to make another movie, the story of this guy, this this uh, relative of mine, would be an interesting one to make. A yeah. film about. Do you yourself speak some Atayal? Um, not much because I mean I I didn't even learn Chinese, yeah. and if I was going to learn another language, <laughs> I more it would be more practical to learn Chinese. So I've been I've been tackling that challenge mm-hmm. for the last twelve years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do know a few words like Lokasuka, which is a greeting, and 
balak balai. Just it's very tasty. Just it's uh, <laughs> important just <little> things, <laughs> easy things. Um, but I, I I feel like it's it's a task I'll take on when I retire because uh, when I have more time and and I actually appreciate that my sons have a chance to learn it and uh, hopefully they can pass it down to me in the future. <laughs> Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, and you alluded to this documentary film that was made about your life. After going on this trip, I wrote an article in Village in the Clouds, and it actually caught the eye of some filmmakers um, who wanted to make a film about it. And also, I started my nonprofit in 2001 as a way to, you say, honor my mother and share her culture in the USA. And... Um, when the filmmakers saw this article and learned about the NGO, they wanted to help make a film about to tell the story. And the and, article was published in what year? Uh, 1997. Okay. And the filmmakers, uh, were we were working on the film for several years, trying to figure out how, what story to tell, how to get there. It was a struggle, you know, with very little budget, if any. But... Instead of worrying about finding a budget for a film, we kept working on our nonprofit to share Taiwanese culture. So I f founded the NGO in 2001, and by 2004, we had our first international festival, cultural, indigenous cultural festival. And uh, we invited a, a group from Taiwan to come and share their culture in, in uh, Orlando, Florida. And we also invited many other tribes so they could be uh, together sharing different indigenous cultures. Um, and that's when we really had a chance to meet Alice. And that's when Alice actually saw me up on stage saying, this is who I am. I'm part of this tribe called Atayal. And she was very touched. And she said, you know what? I need to invite Tony to Taiwan to really know where he comes from. And um, this, this, this was the breakthrough we needed. For our, our film project. And Alice was an is an indigenous woman? Yes, she's a Bunun princess from the Bunun tribe mm -hmm. and a, a, a teacher, a teacher of culture. So she teaches culture. She passes down um, the indigenous culture and, and knowledge and then gives people the opportunities to share it around the world. And uh, so she's very well connected in Taiwan with all the indigenous tribes and when she invited us to go there to, because she knew we wanted to tell this story and she wanted us to tell a great story. So she did what she could to connect us to the stories. And um, so when you went on this trip, you um, also brought your brother, right? And that was the first time that he went to Taiwan? Yes, yes. Uh, I lived with my brother at the time and he was kind of in a, you know, after losing his mother, he was kind of a little lost, and, and he was, I could tell he was searching for something, and I thought uh, connecting him with his mother's uh, culture, his roots, might help him in some way. So yes, mm -hmm. he was, he came with us as part of the film film team. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk a little bit more about that trip, like um, how long was the trip and what span of time did it cover? The film covered that trip, right? Yes, the film was told about our journey to Taiwan. That trip was our journey to discover our roots and to kind of search for our connection with our mother. 
That was in 2004, oh. 2004, December, 2005, okay. January. Okay. So we were there for a little over a month in the winter. Okay. Um, so how did the um, trip affect your brother? Um, well, he's pretty introverted, so he didn't share a lot. But what he did share was kind of profound um, it did affect him in a profound way, I would say, and he, he's not one to they say um, express a lot. But uh, I could tell that it gave him a lot, to, a lot to think about, and a lot of introspection. Um, so I did see him smile at times, which is like the first time in his life that I've seen him smile, wow. <laughs> especially when. When he was, you know, in touch with uh, indigenous peoples, mm. um, but uh, I knew it had a huge effect on him because after the trip, when he went back to back home to Austin, Texas, um, he quit his job. He was a taxi driver. He quit his job and then kind of lost touch with him. But I, I found out he was living as a homeless person, and he went into the mountains around Austin, Texas. He lived in the mountains, forests, with other homeless people. He learned how to survive on his own. And he'd go to the library once in a while to kind of wash up and type in his blog. He called himself the Atayal Prince, hmm. sharing sharing his stories of survival and introspection. And uh, he did have some fans. And one in particular was a young woman from Australia. And she came to visit him this Atayal Prince, and I don't know what happened. They must have fallen for each other because he ended up moving to Australia and starting a family with her, getting married, oh, wow. starting a family. So the prince did get his happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> he did find an angel for sure, somebody who saw him as a prince no matter what. Aww. So she was, she's quite the angel. Mm. So going back to the trip, let's talk a little bit about what happened during the trip. Sure. Uh, during the trip, that was a very intense month. Uh, not only were we traveling around Taiwan with Alice's help, connecting us to different villages and leaders and um, whatever we needed, we'd just pick up the phone and Alice would have it ready for us in a short time and so it was it was amazing you know we we as a documentary filmmaker we you know we we didn't really have a script but we really we did have some direction and some some uh, topics we wanted to cover and, and and we also had to learn to be very uh, what is it what's the word spontaneous yeah yeah not not kind of have to stick to certain things and that's when we got the most amazing footage is when we were willing to be flexible and spontaneous and and let the story, you know, flow and uh, find its find its uh, find its path. I'm really surprised that you said you're only there for a month because I saw the film and it seems like so much longer. Um, and by the way, for our listeners, we'll share a link um, so people can watch the film on our website. It was very intense. So, yes, the experiences were amazing. They were intense, and it was just ongoing. And so, yes, we had a lot of footage for our story. 
Um, it did seem like much longer because we we could never expect to experience so much. And a lot of it had to do with Alice. Yes. She she had everything lined up for mm-hmm. us. And um, but also during that time, you know, we had the the big what was that thing? What's that called? Uh, what is that called? You know, when the when there's earthquake and there's not typhoon. Oh, what is that? What is that? <laughs> it, it was a big one down in the southeast and in, um, India, Indonesia. You know, the big wave hurricane? flooded everyone. What? No, not hurricane. No, no, no not typhoon. Um, it's a big tsunami. Wave. Tsunami. Tsunami. <laughs> tsunami. Time. And uh, my wife's father died right after the tsunami, oh, I'm sorry. and we had to. We had to, like, she was part of our trip until her father died. She had to rush back home, and mm. uh, we we all rushed back mm. home to kind of say goodbye to him mm. on his deathbed. Mm. And um, then we had the funeral, and we had to decide were we continuing with our filmmaking or wow. not, or staying there for her family. And my wife urged me to keep going, even without her, because uh, she didn't want me to have any regrets. And so that that was a big part of our experience is the uh, the loss of her father and a and a Taiwanese funeral experience and that that's in the film as well that 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 challenge that we faced. Um, another challenge was, uh, you know, again, my my brother finding himself. That was another part of the film, and Alice had a big part of that. Alice could see that my brother was a person who was lost and looking for himself. And she wanted to give him the opportunities while he was there. And so she actually asked him, Steve, do you want to stay in Taiwan you know, for a year and live with indigenous people? And she could arrange for everything. And uh, what do you want to do in the future? And my brother said, oh, he wanted to be a chef. And so she said, okay, so – is there anything I can do? And he said, well, the, he was offered a job in Taidong. Oh. And she said, okay, what, what do you need? And uh, he said, well, I, I don't have a place to stay. And then she picked up the phone and said, okay, I have a place for you to live in the mountains. A house wow. is available for you. And she, he said, oh, but then how will I drive to work? And so she picked up the phone and said, okay, Steve, I have a, uh, a car now for you. Incredible. Somebody's giving you a car. And so... There he had a whole life laid out in front of him. Hey, you can stay here for a year. You can work in a restaurant, and this restaurant owner will help you open a, your own restaurant wow. in the near future. And you've got a place to live in a car. He was he was overwhelmed, yeah. and it was actually exciting for him and scary at the same time. And actually, his fear his fear of that change and an uncertainty I think won over his excitement. And so he decided to go back to America instead of accepting this opportunity I that see. Alice offered. But yeah, it, it, it was a lot about his discovery as well, this film, as well as my discovery of the, of the, of the culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it did continue. We had many people that we met, many places that we saw. And we did learn... Uh, that even though all these different indigenous tribes were different in name, they were they were very similar as well in in many ways. You know they. How so? Uh, they all struggled with um, 
trying to revive a culture that they practically lost. They probably lost a few generations. Mm. And to rebuild what was lost, to try to find, to restore the language, to find elders that still knew it and tried to, you know, trying to record it and revive it. And, you know, that was a challenge. And and another thing they had in common was that they had a deep respect for you know, the land, the land that they were from. The land was more than just property. The land was a living a living thing. It was, it was their mother and their father that gave them life. So they have a deep respect for the land, the earth, nature, and um, their, way of, their way of living in harmony with nature is universal among tribes. And I heard them sharing their stories about their childhood before the Japanese came and took them away from their villages in the mountains. They just said, remember, their life was a life of plenty. They had everything they could ask for provided by nature. You know, food, flowers, you know, um, the beauty around them, the waterfalls, everything was there for them, and their life was happy. And all they had to do every day was sing. Their life was full of singing hmm. and, in the mountains, and that was taken away from them. But that, that, that's, that's yeah, something that, that, they, that I learned. Wow, that, yeah, that's such a stark contrast from just you know living a life where you have whatever you need at your fingertips and then... Um, having that change overnight and struggling for resources and education yes. and opportunities. Yeah. Yes. Having all that you need, then coming into live in this squalor, having to rely on something called money that they've never, you know, never had. Mm. And, mm. and it's given to them in such, I don't know, it's given to them in such small amounts that they never can have enough. So it is a big difference. It, do you, it was big do you think that now there's at least some kind of a happy medium? Because they can't go back to that time, but uh, how is the situation for a lot of the indigenous peoples in Taiwan now? Uh, yeah, that's that, a tough that's question. Tough. <laughs> yeah. There, there are people who have adjusted. Um, you can say education is a... It levels the playing field for many indigenous people that education is not, still not available. It's still limited. But there are a few who have had access to education because they have the resources through their families and they have excelled given the opportunity. So what, what, what I have seen is that the indigenous people actually have – Given the same opportunities and resources, they truly excel in this society. They become doctors, government leaders, and they actually have some of the best test grades in the entire nation. Mm. Um, but also, they they're able to like uh, learn foreign languages much mm. easier than Chinese wow. Chinese people because of the indigenous languages being more similar to the Western languages. So. Um, they do have some advantages mm -hmm. when they when they have the opportunities. Mm -hmm. They they do have a lot of abilities to excel. Yeah. So, 
I'm also wondering about the reconnection to the land part. That's probably harder because you said they had such an affinity to the land. If any tribes or peoples have had a chance to reclaim land or become reconnected to the land. I said there are people that had chance to excel, but just in general, to finish the last question, there's still a huge gap in the resources available mm -hmm. to indigenous people. And um, I, I think a lot of young kids still don't have that stability at home and the guidance at home. So they still have a lot of social issues with young indigenous people. Um, so that that's still prevalent at this time. It, it hasn't been resolved. Um, so now, back to your next question. Uh, land. Okay. So yes, with the land in Taiwan being taken away for many, many years, uh, that connection was also disconnected. But there's there are definitely villages where you could still see um, the land being, I don't know how to say, the land being respected and and that respect being passed down it's still it's still there but it's very limited um, one of the uh, inspiring stories that I saw was in Taidong this uh, this Paiwan police policeman named Sakinu he actually took it upon himself to bring his culture back that was lost from his parents generation and pass it down to the young people in his community. So he created uh, the hunting club, uh, a traditional way to pass down indigenous, traditional knowledge to mm -hmm. indigenous youth. Mm -hmm. And that's where he was able to teach, you know, how to respect the land, how to respect the customs, what are the traditional values that the, uh, I don't know if it's Bunu tribe or Paiwan tribe, but he, he was instrumental in, reviving that and passing it down and and i remember hearing about this hunting club that the young indigenous people had to learn and also face challenges at the same time as showing respect to the land and learning how to conquer work with the land to conquer challenges I, one of their maybe their final exam was something like this um going out in the mountains, going out into the forests in the middle of the night and maybe learn, surviving, you know, going from one place to another, which was very far away, in the dark, learning how to use the moonlight to guide them and, and stars to guide them and survive for I don't know how many days. Wow. But living in the, in the wild alone and to achieve some goals and get to a certain place as, as their – way to prove that they've learned and matured and uh, conquered their face their fears and conquered their challenges that's 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 their test yeah and, those are some uh, real survival skills <laughs> yeah it, it had a lot to do with the land it was teaching the wisdom of the land and, and learning mm. how to mm. uh, overcome the challenges of land and working with the land to survive and thrive right yeah so, yeah, it, it is making a revival, mm -hmm. but it, it's not easy in modern yes. society. Yes. But pe people are gaining people are gaining a better, uh, greater respect for it, though. Yeah, that's good to know. Um, what was uh, was there something that was um, the most memorable about your trip uh, in which you made the documentary? 
Is there something that wow. happened? Yeah, I'm sure that's probably hard to pick one. <laughs> it is. I, all I could do is remember some footage and some moments, but uh, it really, every time I got to see a personal connection with the Atayal culture, um, like when I met the elder with the tattoo that uh, treated me like I was part of her family, that that was hard to forget. Uh, meeting the young people for the first time and seeing them share their culture through the music and dance and you know and, and meeting with them face to face that was very that was a, a huge impression um, but also the fact that my wife had to deal with uh, her father's death and still wanted me to continue and complete my mission there as a, you know making the film that that that's something I can't forget as well I think that's probably the most most impactful, most memorable. Yeah, without moment. without her blessing, maybe you wouldn't have been able to finish the film, or it would have been a different film. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, she was saying your, your dream over our family right mm -hmm. now is more important, and mm -hmm. that that was a big. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'd say it. That that was a big affirmation for me. Absolutely. Um, for me, one the scene that was particularly memorable was when you visited an abandoned village in the mountains. It was quite haunting to see you go up in the mountains and see what was left of this um, indigenous village. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, up until this, up well, throughout the, the, the experience, I was meeting people and learning about culture, but Visiting the village that was up in the mountains was uh, my first experience of feeling like an explorer, which means I was able to find something that was lost. Um, that was a new experience for me. So it was a long journey on foot. I don't know why we had to walk on foot. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, I think we could have taken motor scooters had it been planned, but uh, that's fine. Um <laughs> But once we got there, yes, it was haunting because it really had me think. You know, I, I got to think about the indigenous people as a place. Before it was about the people and their culture, but as a place, what what the indigenous people, what changes were evident in the indigenous communities became evident to me at that time. So what I saw was. Um, I saw evidence of what life was like, traditional indigenous life was like, before being influenced by the Japanese and the Chinese. Um, I could still see, you know, that they, what roots they gathered, what foods they had inside their stone houses. And I, I got to see how the stone houses were made, you know, that was, that they've made it that way for hundreds of years. I got to see how they, you know, built their dwellings. Uh, I got to see what they ate, what how they cooked, and how they prepared just by looking inside the houses. And and then I was able to see the uh, the church, the abandoned church, which was a symbol of, you know, the maybe the first foreign influences over their traditions. 
And then I saw the Japanese guard guardhouse, which looked, you know, was a place where the Japanese at every village would have their own little guard guardhouse to oversee the villagers. And that was a Japanese influence. And then uh, I got to see, you know, signs of, you know, their their addresses on their houses that were in Chinese. So I did get to see the modernization that was brought during the Chinese time, you know, with power lines and and addresses and um, motor scooters and trash that had some modern garbage in there um, brought into the village. So I I did see like it, it was like it was like several time capsules being revealed to me by looking at the place. So that that's how I would describe my experiences visiting that village. Yeah, that's pretty incredible that there was so many things preserved and that you could see the passage of time. Yeah, yeah, it's like a time capsule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's still there if anyone wants to visit. Sure. Yeah, it's a nice. <laughs> but just hike. don't go on foot. <laughs> yeah, you can you can take a scooter if you have a local take you they should mm-hmm. they should be able to get up mm-hmm. there on a scooter mm-hmm. um and what is it is what is that area called it's in Pingdong by Sandiman okay. uh, Sandiman mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. an indigenous village yes I've heard of it um do you know like what percentage of the indigenous peoples in Taiwan inhabited the mountainous regions oh wait what percentage of the indigenous people yeah, like because you mentioned there are the ones that were um, inhabited the mountains, and then the ones that inhabited lowlands. Well, the ones that inhabited the lowlands were assimilated hundreds of years ago, and uh, Way to Sun's actually going to make a good movie about that's going to reveal a lot about that from four hundred years ago when the Dutch came. Hmm. Um, I think I think you'll learn a lot more about the lowland indigenous people from his film than any any other resource that's available because mm-hmm. he, he has to do a lot of research for that as himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the tribes that are still around now uh, are alive because they live in the mountains. So I'd say majority of them, which is about 1% of the population, um, that's their traditional home in the mountains. But uh, most of them don't live there the elders might live there, young kids might live there, but most people live in the cities to to work, right? They have mm-hmm. jobs. Mm-hmm. So you can say the traditional mountain homesteads are there. They represent about 1% of the population, about 200,000 people. That, to answer your question... Um, that's currently, but of, of the 16 tribes, like how many of them were mountain and how many were lowland? Do you know? Just out of curiosity. Oh, of the 16 tribes? Yeah. Well, I would say every tribe that is recognized now is mountainous. It's oh. a mountain tribe. Because oh. the lowland, lowland tribes don't they exist They were assimilated anymore. so long ago. Yeah, they're not recognized. Okay. Oh, you know, I see. like the Saraya. The oh. Saraya tribe hmm. was from Tainan, mm-hmm. lowlands, mm-hmm. but they're not recognized because oh. their 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 culture is not preserved mm. and their language is mm-hmm. not preserved. Mm. They're lost. 
Um, so I would say out of all the tribes, the only tribe I know of that's not mountainous is Amis. Amis is a coastal tribe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they're the only tribe that I know of that's would you wouldn't consider a mountain tribe out of the 16. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to tell you one more thing too, yes. which is, I think this is important. When most people think about Taiwan's indigenous peoples and they say how many, uh, they're only 1%, there's, you know, 200 something thousand of them. But the thing is in Chinese society in Taiwanese society, they, focus on lineage being through the father. So that's 250,000 people based on their you know connection through their fathers. But there's still people that, who are indigenous who don't officially they're not recognized as indigenous because they have their you know through their mother they, they have that culture through their mother. So there's probably a lot more people who would you would consider indigenous through DNA um, because of that, because they only recognize the father's lineage traditionally right. in and Chinese I, culture. I would be willing to bet that most of the the parent that was the indigenous parent was probably usually the mother. Yes, right. And, and most uh, Chinese that came over originally were just men. Right. And so if you look at the DNA, people have done DNA research in Taiwan. They, they, they show that you know, more, than, more than 70% of Taiwanese have indigenous DNA. Interesting. So I want to thank you so much, Tony, for sharing about your experience discovering your roots. And we'll have you back for another episode to talk more about your work with indigenous bridges and indigenous peoples of Taiwan. Okay, thank you. I've been speaking with Tony Coolidge about the indigenous people of Taiwan. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Tony, in which he will talk about indigenous bridges, the programs that he runs through his non-for-profit, the Atayel Organization. Visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com, for a link to watch the documentary about Tony's 2004 trip to Taiwan and to other items mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, tell a friend about us, or better yet, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.